had a joke. A burglar broke into a house one night. He shined his flashlight around, looking for valuables. And when he picked up a CD player to place in his sack, strange disembodied voice echoed from the dark saying, Joshua is watching. He nearly jumped out of his skin, flicking his flashlight off and froze. When he heard nothing more after a bit, he shook his head and promised himself a vacation after the next big score, and then clicked the light on and began searching for more valuables. Just as he pulled the stereo out so he could disconnect the wires, there's a bell he heard. Joshua is watching. Freaked out, he shined his light around frantically looking for the source of the voice. Finally, in the corner of the room, his flashlight beam came to rest on a parrot. Did you say that? He hissed at the parrot? Yep. The parrot confessed and then squawked, I'm just trying to warn you. The burglar relaxed. Warn me, huh? Who in the world are you? Moses, replied the bird. Moses, the burglar laughed. What kind of people would name a bird Moses? The kind of people that would name a Rottweiler Joshua. Smart <laughs> man. Smart man. Last year, in our second semester, we studied the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. In this year's second semester, we will continue our study in the book of, of Samuel with 2 Samuel. The earliest Hebrew manuscripts considered 1 and 2 Samuel one book, which was named after Samuel, the man who was appointed by God to establish the kingship in Israel. Samuel was a prophet and the last of Israel's judges. The books span about 135 years of history. Their human author is unknown. The events in 1 Samuel spans from the birth of Samuel to the death of Saul, Israel's first king. God had raised up judges to preserve the nation against their enemies. Now Israel was being transformed from loosely knit tribes unto judges into a united nation under a king. Judges 21-25 says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel was a very rebellious nation, even from the beginning. God had instructed them to stay pure, not intermarry with their pagan neighbors, and worship no other gods but him. But they did. Judges 2, 1 and 2. The angel of the Lord said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Judges 2, 11-23, explains how angry God was and that he gave them into the hands of their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, and they were severely distressed. 
They developed a four-part cycle which occurred over and over. First they turned away from God, worshipped idols, then they were chastened with being conquered and subjugated by their enemies. They pleaded for deliverance and mercy, and finally God sent judges to help them. Everyone became corrupt. Even priests and judges were dishonest. Idolatry was practiced, and the Ark of the Covenant was not at the tabernacle. This was a terrible time in Israel's history. The nation decided they wanted a king. 1 Samuel 8.4 Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. For a thousand years from the time of Abraham, there hadn't been a king over Israel. God was their king and protector. But he had always had a plan for Israel to have a king. God had predicted in Genesis 35, 36, and 49, Numbers 17 and Deuteronomy 17 and 28, that Israel would ask for a king. Deuteronomy 17, 14, and 15a. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. And then God gave them restrictions on whom they could choose, but the people were premature in their request for a king. They had waited. They could have avoided a lot of trouble. However, the impatient Israelites wouldn't wait on the Lord and decided they wanted a king right away. Samuel was troubled, and he prayed to the Lord. God told him to listen to their request, tell them what the procedure for choosing a king would be, and warn them about their decision. Samuel warns them in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that they would regret their decision cry out for freedom from his rule. But God would not hear their cries. He, want, he warned them that the king would be a dictator, take from them what he wanted, and he would take the best, including their children, for his service. And God would not hear their cries. 1 Samuel 8, 18. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Israel insisted. Samuel was troubled by their motive and their attitude, not their request. They were not rejecting Samuel. They were rejecting God himself as their king and protector. They wanted to be like other nations. They wanted a king with an organized army to fight against the Philistines, their enemy, and anyone else who would threaten them. After all he had done for them, they did not trust God. Israel did not want to be unique. They wanted to be like everyone else. So God appointed a man named Saul. God gave them Saul in answer to their request for a king. Saul means asked of God. In the beginning, King Saul was successful. He seemed humble and timid. He fought the Ammonites and won. He fought all enemies and defeated them. But that changed. Conflicts and problems revealed true character. God set the king up so the king would reign through him. But Saul was not a man 
after God's own heart. He was rebellious and self-sufficient. He actually made a burnt offering himself in chapter 13, 9, which he had no business doing. Only Levites were permitted to be priests and make offerings. Saul wished to rule as an autocrat, possessing absolute power in civil and sacred matters. In Deuteronomy 17.14, God expected a king to behave in a certain way. Saul did not behave. He was a moral failure. God wanted the king to rely on him, not his own strength. Leadership calls for dependency on the Lord. Saul wanted victory but didn't want to obey. So God was going to remove him from the throne. That's a lesson we all need to learn to put into practice. In 1 Samuel 15, God gave Saul the opportunity to redeem himself with obedience. He failed. The Amalekites, descendants of Esau, attacked the nation of Israel in the wilderness when they were coming out of Egypt. See Exodus 17, 8-16. The Lord swore he would war against them from generation to generation. In 1 Samuel 15, God told Saul to annihilate the Amalekites. Guides. Every man, woman, child, and animal. Every living thing was to be killed. In defiance, he spared the king in prime livestock and then lied to Samuel about it. Afterward, Saul wanted Samuel to return with him to his home so the people would see them together. 1 Samuel 15, 24-26 Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, but you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Saul wasn't concerned about obedience, just what people thought of him. He was concerned about how it would look if Samuel didn't return with him. That was the last time Saul saw him until the day Samuel saw him until the day Saul died. Saul was on the throne 15 more years, and then God replaced him with David. God said of David that he was a man after his own heart. David was not plan B. He was God's choice from the beginning of eternity. God used Saul's sin and his disobedience to bring about his own purpose of placing David on the throne of Israel. He never forced Saul to disobey. He just used his disobedience to remove him. David was not perfect, as we know. He would not even meet the standards of a New Testament elder. But God knew his character and called him a man in his own heart. God looks at the heart, not externals. Chapter 16 of 1 Samuel describes how Samuel finally settled on David. It's a very interesting story. David was the youngest brother. He was the shepherd who tended their sheep in the fields. When God told Samuel that David was his anointed one, Samuel was surprised. So was David's father, Jesse. God had been preparing David all his life to be king. He was around 16 when Saul anointed him. Samuel anointed him. Years passed before he was ready to take the throne. 
During that time, he developed many gifts he had been blessed with. He was a fine musician, he wrote poetry, he was a warrior, he was a faithful shepherd to the flock. He was humble, didn't brag on himself. Unlike Saul, he was obedient to the Lord. Acts 13, 20-22 After all these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, forty years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all I will. So David was a great, a man of great character. When David was anointed, God's spirit came on him and at the same time was removed from Saul. When that happened, Saul experienced terrible anxiety and paranoia. 1 Samuel 16, 13-15 Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah where he lived. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. God had turned Saul over to Satan. Saul's servants were concerned about him and suggested he let them seek a man who was a skillful harp player and that the music would soothe him. And guess who they found? 1 Samuel 16, 17-19 So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skilled musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man. And the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the flock. So God introduced David into the court of King Saul. 1 Samuel 16, 21. Then David came to Saul and attended him. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. In subsequent chapters, David slays the giant Goliath, befriends Saul's son Jonathan, marries Saul's daughter Michael, and flees from Saul's wrath. David was a great warrior. Chapter 18, verses 6 through 8, describes a turning point between David and Saul. 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 8. It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine. That the woman came out, that the women came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines with joy and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Saul turned against David. He was threatened by him and for good reason. 1 Samuel 18, 12. Now Saul was afraid of David, but the Lord was with him. 
but had departed from Saul. Surely Saul understood it was David who chose, who God chose to replace him. Jonathan, Saul's son, warned David that his father wanted to kill him. So David fled for his life. He kept moving to stay out of Saul's way to at least 14 different places. Saul was very insecure and was trying to hold on to his position no matter what. David waited on the Lord. As Saul chased him many times, David could have killed him, but he would not. Saul had been anointed by God, and for David that meant he was untouchable. 1 Samuel 28 tells us that the Philistine army was gathering against Israel, and Saul was terrified. He sought the Lord, but the Lord did not answer. So in desperation and blatant disobedience to God, Saul consulted a medium in the city of Endor, located in Philistine territory. During this consult, Samuel, who was dead, actually appeared and told Saul that the nation of Israel would lose to the Philistines and he and his sons would be killed. That is exactly what happened. David had taken refuge among the Philistines under the protection of their king. He could have been in that battle, but the commanders of the Philistines didn't trust him, so the king sent him home. God had to have spared him, because I can't imagine David going against Saul and Jonathan and the nation of Israel in battle. In the last chapter of 1 Samuel, Saul was dead, and so was David's dearest and most faithful friend, Jonathan. Just as the dead Samuel had prophesied in Endor, David learns of their deaths from a young man in the first verses of 2 Samuel chapter 1, who says he is an Amalekite, the son of a resident alien. This Amalekite young man was very surprised by the reaction of David and his men on hearing of the deaths and suffered because of it. David writes a dirge, a poem for Saul and Jonathan called the Song of the Bow that commemorates the valor and greatness and faithfulness of these men whom he loved. On the death of Saul, David is first made king over Judah and leader over Israel. Second Samuel tells how King David was able to unite the 12 tribes into one nation, defeat their enemies, expand their borders, and prepare the way for his son Solomon to ascend the throne. One of the major themes in Second Samuel is restoration. The restoration of national unity, restoration of David after he sinned, the restoration of the throne after rebellion by David's son Absalom. We see God working and empowering David and the nation to accomplish his will. Saul tore things apart, but God used David to start putting them back together. God calls him a man after his own heart. He also was a man who knew all about sin and its devastating results. David is ultimately broken by his sin and knows he needs God's forgiveness, and God's forgiveness is only accessible through a right view of sin. In Psalm 32, David wrote about his sin, verses 1, 2, and 5. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. In Galatians 6-7, the Apostle Paul says, 
a man reaps what he sows. And we see this truth played out in David's life. We learn about God from the life of David that he forgives sin and restores once we confess and repent, but he does not absolve us from our consequences. Throughout David's life, there is a constant death and strife within his family, incest and rape and premeditated murder. David's son Absalom flees after the murder. David's experienced experiences insurrection of his throne by that same son to the point where David flees from his home, he is attacked and cursed and forced to fight against Absalom. Absalom, his son whom he loves, is killed. In addition to all this, because of David's sin, his little son, conceived in adultery, dies after being born. In the life, if the life of David teaches us anything, it's that God can and does use imperfect people to accomplish his purposes. And he will discipline when his servants disobey him. We also learn that no personal or national situation is beyond God's ability to put things right. We can take comfort in that. David's legacy was a united people and a strong kingdom which he turned over to his son Solomon to do the one thing he wanted more than anything else, to build the temple for the Lord. But God would not allow David to build it himself. First Chronicles 22, 7 and 8. David said to Solomon, My son, I had intended to build a house in the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. The last chapter of 2 Samuel describes how David bought a threshing floor to build an altar to the Lord. It indicated where the Lord wanted his temple built. First Chronicles 21-25 describes how David purchased the entire site of Mount Moriah on which to build God's temple, not just the threshing floor. There's a note in my Bible stating that the threshing floor of Ornan is today believed to be the very flat rock under the Muslim uh, mosque, the Dome of the Rock, inside the temple ground in Jerusalem. David organized everything for Solomon, the land, the materials, and incredible quantities, the artisan workmen, both Jews and resident aliens, to complete the building. The Lord even gave the plans for the temple to David, as described in 1 Chronicles 28, 11, and 12. So 2 Samuel begins with David learning about the deaths of Saul and his beloved Jonathan, and ends with David preparing for the house of the Lord to be built in the place where God told him he wanted it built. Again, if the life of David teaches us anything, it's that God can and does use imperfect people to accomplish his purposes, and he will discipline when his servants disobey him. That would be good to remember when we're tempted to sin. We serve a merciful and loving God. He knows we are not perfect. And he will honor sincere confession and repentance of our sin, just as he did when David repented. I pray every lady here will continue faithfully in our study of 2 Samuel and learn about the incredible life of King David, imperfect as he was, who was a man after God's own Let's pray. Precious, precious Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for 
the life of David, Father, many lessons that uh, his life can teach us, Father, and mostly we learn that you are a merciful and loving God so, so quickly to forgive um, when we understand right view of our son, uh, our sin, Father, when we, when we examine ourselves, Lord, confess our sins to you, Lord, and when we repent, you are so quick to forgive, Lord, and we just thank you for your mercy that. And we just pray for each and every lady here as they continue on the study, Father, that, that you'll speak to each heart, Father, and that each of us will learn and um, apply your truths and your principles to our lives, Father, that we may honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.